after saying that. But I don't know of anybody making this claim. I am everything. I am everything humanity has ever wanted. That's audacious. So I see this central claim in this chapter as sort of this tree of life that's in a garden. And so we're going to spend some time this morning looking at this tree, but then we're going to step back and look at the garden because it's in the garden around this tree that Jesus helps this tree make sense to us and actually comforts our souls and explains to us how we cannot be afraid. Okay, so we're just going to look through it that way briefly this morning. He opens up. This is his last speech, his last sermon, his final words to his followers before he's going to be crucified. He knows this. They don't know this. They still don't fully understand what he means and what he's talking about, but it's starting to become clear, and they're starting to get afraid because he's starting to speak in very concrete language, I am leaving you. And he knows that in saying this to these people that have been following him for the last three years, he knows the response is going to be one of fear. Think of all of the hopes and dreams that are wrapped up in Jesus amongst this group of men right now. Judas has already left to go betray Jesus. So there's these 11 disciples that are sitting there. Think of all the hopes and dreams that are wrapped up in Jesus. I mean, for some, and they all have different views of who he is, and they all have different desires for what he would do. Some of them are just waiting for the military conquest that's going to ensue, and they're counting on him to deliver them from Roman oppressors. Others of them are counting on him to deliver them from the oppression of the false teachers and the pharisaical rules and laws and this, this, dis, this religion that has distanced itself from God. Some of them are counting on this. Some of them believe that he's, he's the Messiah. In fact, all of them believe that he's the Messiah, but different facets of this. And so they're just hoping that, that they haven't wasted these last three years that this really is the one that's been promised, that this person really is going to lead them into all that the prophets promised for God's people. They're counting on this. And now Jesus is, in a sense, removing all of those things because he's removing himself. He's saying, I am going away. So before he says that, the first thing that he says is don't be afraid. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This idea of belief for John is a key idea, a key concept for his writings. In fact, later on in John chapter 20, he's going to say, look, there are a lot of things that Jesus did that I don't have room to put in this book. But these things, my eyewitness account, I'm writing these things down so that you might believe and not just believe that Jesus existed historically, that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So belief for John is more than just this intellectual assent to historical fact. Belief in John is the sort of thing that wells up in you and brings you into an alternate reality. 
belief for John encompasses our physical, natural reality, but it's a supernatural reality surrounding all of the things that we think we understand about science and biology and math. Surrounding all of those things is this supernatural reality that John has come to believe in enough to lay his life down for it. And he's saying, my whole aim in writing this letter to you is that you would believe and that in experiencing that belief, you would step into this alternate, larger-than-your-life reality and be saved by it. That's his whole goal. So when he says, believe, 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 when he hones in on remembering when Jesus said, believe, that's what this means. He's not just calling you to simply understand that two plus two equals four. He's calling you to enter into something bigger than everything that you think that you understand. In fact, he's gonna, oh, that's how he opens up this gospel, all the way back in John chapter 1. We're just going to look there really briefly so that we see this scope. John chapter 1, this is his introduction. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That Word is for, uh, in, this, in this time, this, this reality in the beginning, this was the central defining reality of the universe. And this reality was with God and was God himself. So God doesn't exist apart from reality, somewhere outside our reality, far off in a mysterious place called heaven. God himself is reality and reality exists inside of God. That's how John opens this letter. That is audacious. That is a bold statement. That's, that's philosophical, right? That's a big deal. And so this is how he opens it. And he's going to go through his gospel hoping to prove, he, to make his case as an eyewitness to the central reality of the universe. That's what he's doing. He's not, this is not just a journal entry for John. This is not... Several chapters of a diary. That's not what this is. This is John's central eyewitness account of the way reality works. So, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it is a big deal. And we're going to look at those things. And it's actually not just a slap in the face of skeptics. This is actually, Jesus is saying this with tremendous compassion for skeptics. If you this morning find yourself a skeptic of Christianity, you're skeptical, you are welcome in John chapter 14. You're welcome in all of the Bible. You're welcome here at Providence. We will never mock you for your doubts. We will never belittle you and say, well, when you arrive, you won't have any more doubts. But especially here in this chapter, we see Jesus is deep, longing heart for the skeptics. And so if you're a skeptic this morning, welcome. And I hope, I don't, I don't hope that in my 22 minutes left that I can answer all of your questions, okay? I don't hope that I can do that. I know that I can't do that. What I hope is I can introduce you to someone who can and someone who loves you enough to take as long as that requires to do that for you. He will do that for you. 
And we know that because of this command that he gives you and me, let not your hearts be troubled. It's a command from Jesus. If you this morning are not skeptical, you do not find yourself wracked with doubt, and you would say that you are a follower of Jesus, you receive this as a command, like this is something that should be governing your life. Do not be afraid. Believe in God. Believe in me. How do you not be afraid? According to Jesus, maybe not according to your counselor, but according to Jesus, believe in Jesus. Believe in him. Believe in him. Commit yourself to stepping into this larger reality where Jesus is presently, right now, with flesh and bone and blood. He's in this reality. Commit yourself to knowing him and finding him. That's believe. It's not Tinkerbell. I believe in fairies, and so now she's going to live. That's not what this is. This is, I am committing my whole life to pursuing and believing and acknowledging and submitting to this reality. And in doing that, you will find yourself untroubled by everything else. At least, that's what Jesus promises. So, let's look quickly at what he says next, because Thomas is a skeptic. Thomas doubts, and he's not the only one in this chapter with doubts, significant doubts. Thomas has spent three years with Jesus, all leading up to this moment, and Thomas is not convinced. Thomas is going to go all the way to the end of the book and not quite fully be convinced until the very end. He's going to see Jesus fulfill everything that Jesus said he was going to do and come back from the dead in the flesh and still not be fully convinced. And Jesus loved Thomas and was patient with Thomas and invited all of Thomas's doubts. And so you're welcome here if you find yourself resonating with Thomas. And Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How, how can we know the way? Jesus has just said, I'm going to leave, but don't worry. I am going to prepare a place for you. The place that he's referencing is very familiar, was very familiar to the Jewish mind and heart. This is all throughout the Old Testament, uh, very prominently in the 23rd Psalm. Uh, it says, I shall dwell where forever? In the house of the Lord. So to this point, their concept of resurrection life was something that would happen far off in the future. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to die. And then sometime in the day of days, in the day of the Lord, he's going to raise me back to life and bring me into his house. And there I will live forever. That was their concept of resurrection life. Far off in the future. And I'm going to live with God. And it was beautiful. And it was a compelling thing for them. But that's what it was. And so that's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to that place, and I am preparing that place. This is the place in Psalm 23 where we find our cups running over. The Lord has prepared a feast, a table in the presence of our enemies, and our cups are running over, and our heads are anointed with oil. This is the celebration that's going to last forever. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to get that ready for you. And I wouldn't have told you that I am if I wasn't doing it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm leaving you. And for them, immediately, their thoughts were, that's a long way off. Jesus is going, Jesus is going a long way off. It'd be one thing if he just said he was going to die tomorrow. He's going beyond that. 
he's going out of reach. He is out of touch. If that's where he's going, we don't even know how to get there. And Jesus says, and you know the way. So that's why Thomas says, how can we know the way? We do not know the way that you're going. And then Jesus answers him with, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Jesus assumed that Thomas had more doubts than he was surfacing. And what I see in this, these three things that Jesus is saying that he is, these three core identities of Jesus, these things have resonated down through the centuries. The doubts that we feel in our hearts today are no different than the doubts that the people around Jesus felt when he was on the earth or the doubts that his followers felt a hundred years later or a thousand years later. The fears and doubts are the same. And I see here Jesus' answer to three key streams, maybe, of doubt, categories, atmospheres of doubt. First, I am the way. What Jesus is specifically, in the context referencing there, is this idea of a compelling destiny. Because he's talking about that place. He's talking about that house of God. And he's saying there are many rooms. There's even room for you, Thomas, with all your doubts. There's room. I've got a room. I'm preparing a room for you. There's a place for you. There's a place for all of you. That is a compelling, in Jesus' mind at least, hopefully your mind, that is a compelling destiny. It's compelling enough to get our eyes off of the lesser destinies that we settle for. And it's often these lesser destinies that tend to fuel our doubts. I'll give you some examples. Actually, I'll just ask you for some examples. What are some examples, maybe, of lesser destinies as we plan out the future of our lives? The American dream. Yes. Yes, that is a lesser, bankrupt, eternally bankrupt destiny. Don't worry, your, house, your home values are okay for now. But the American dream will not carry you to your death, and it certainly won't carry you beyond it. It is a lesser destiny. What else? Marriage. Marriage. Yes. I'm glad that Courtney's sitting right next to you, Juan. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. How many of us that are married when we were kids or teenagers or college students thought, once I'm married, then I'll have it all? That's it. That's a, it is a destiny. And I've been married to my wife now for 20 years, and she would tell you it's a little less than she thought it was cracked up to be. <laughs> it is a lesser destiny. Marriage is a lesser destiny. What else? Retirement. Yes, very closely related to the American dream. It's big in this country. Once I get done with all of these kids and I get done with my career, I can just kick back and retire and I can spend all of my energy planning on that day. That is the day of days for me. But it's not going to carry you. It's not going to carry you. I heard something over here. One more. Professional success. Absolutely. Absolutely. That has been one for me that's been particularly relevant as I have pursued success without even realizing it. I get magnetized, drawn into this pursuit, and I want to read about how to be more successful and all of this stuff, but it is a lesser destiny. There's nothing wrong with it. God blesses. God is a provider. He blesses. But if you're pinning your hopes and dreams on success, all it takes is a little crack in that and your world is rocked, right? And you find yourself doubting. 
So it may be that some of you here this morning, maybe, in your life right now or your recent history have found yourself hoping in one of these lesser destinies. And Jesus is not saying, I can give you a better career. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is not saying here, I, I am the way to a better marriage. That's not what he's saying. He is. He is that, but he's not saying that here. He's not saying, I am, I am going to help you make it into retirement and just enjoy retirement. That's not the promise. He's promising something much, much bigger than that. He's saying, link yourself to me, link your life to my life, and I will get you there, beyond the grave, into the house, into my father's house. I am the way. And if you know me, Thomas, you know me. That's all you need. You know me. You know the way. It is enough. It is enough to know Jesus. And he'll get you there. That's his promise. I am the truth. That's his next statement that he makes. I am the truth. And this is another stream of doubt for us. And this is really a big one in our time and culture right now. Doubt is hailed as a virtue right now. We have moved through postmodernism. We have abandoned absolute truth. And so now we find ourselves in the utopia of doubt. <laughs> we can say nothing with absolute certainty. Nothing. We know nothing. And it's wonderful, right? <laughs> it's wonderful. And so we're seeing this play out in the church. And the problem that the church has made leading up to, I think, a problem the church has made leading up to this postmodernist and then post-postmodernist time is that we have assumed a lot of certainty without explaining it and defending it. We've gone to John and said, the word was God and the word was with God, and that's it. That's our entire reason for believing. We've stopped right there, and we have not built a case for the reality that Jesus lives in and has come to offer us. We haven't built the case, and we have not handed that down to our children and our children's children and our children's children's children. We haven't done that. We haven't built a house that can stand up to inquisition. And suddenly, for the first time ever in the 20th century, humanity got smart and started asking questions. And the church, by and large, did not have good answers to valid questions. And so now what we're seeing happen is people are leaving the church because we're sucked into this arena of doubt. And we have no solid answers. And so the church responds in one of two ways. They respond with, then you're out. If you got doubt, you don't believe enough, you're not one of us, you're out. Or they respond with, I don't know. You got questions? I don't know, believe. Believe. Memorize some things. Jesus has patience for your doubt, and Jesus has really, really good answers that have stood up to centuries upon centuries of questions. Your questions are okay. Christianity is not shaken because you don't have answers to some questions. It's going to be here a thousand years from now. It's been here for two. It will survive postmodern Western culture. It will survive it. It will. 
So you, can, you are free to ask your questions. You're not going to shake anything. You're not going to cause anything to come crumbling down. You are free to do that. You are free to have questions. And we invite them here at Providence. And we invite you with all of your questions here at Providence. And what we want to do is help you. I promise you, no matter what the question is, there are many people before you that have had it. There are good answers to your questions. Just don't half-ass it. If you are deconstructing, don't put forth this minimal effort and just come out on the other side and say, well, I deconstructed and now I found out that I can really do whatever I want and I can go wherever I want on Sundays and I can sleep with whoever I want and this is great. That's lazy. That's lazy. You haven't asked any questions at that point. You've thrown off the authority of Jesus' reality. That's all you've done. And you've done that since you were three and so have I. We can throw off authority. That's okay. <laughs> That's easy to do. That's not hard. But if you're going to deconstruct, commit to it. Jesus isn't freaked out by it. In fact, Jesus promises to go with you on the journey if you'll just take him with you. If you've got questions, it might be Jesus himself who put those questions in your heart before you were born. If you have this desire to explore truth and philosophy that is a God-given desire, and you should do it with all your heart. Just like somebody, my son, Jason, and Jay's son, Peyton, are in Hawaii in college because they love biology. They love beaches, but they love biology. <laughs> and so Peyton wants to study uh, marine biology. Jason wants to study zoology. God put those desires in their hearts. He knit them together in their mother's womb. And now Jesus says to them, let's go. You have no idea what I have in store for you on this journey of exploration. And this realm of truth, philosophy, knowing. I mean, philosophy is a beautiful word. It's philo, right? Sophia, the love of wisdom. Jesus loves wisdom. He he's fascinated by wisdom. And if you have this desire in your heart to go explore, don't be afraid. Just go explore, and Jesus will go with you. And you will come out on the other side okay. You will. He he's promising that. Let not your heart be troubled. I am the truth. I am strong enough to endure your questions and your doubts and give you really, really good, long-lasting answers to those things. And then... He says, I'm the life. Now, this is a different life than this concept that we talked about earlier that is this far-off concept where I live, I die, and then sometime, maybe thousands of years later, God brings me back from the dead. This is right here and now life that Jesus is offering. And he demonstrated this with raising Lazarus from the dead. When, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, he demonstrated what he meant by life. It's not something that happens far off in the future. You can have this life right now. And he anchors it in what's about to happen to him. He says, I'm, I'm going away. Essentially, I'm going to die. And when I live, because I live, you will live. Later on in the chapter, he says that. Peace I live with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, this is verse 28, I am going away and I will come to you. 
If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So Jesus is saying, this is all going to happen. And at the other side of this, life will happen. Right here, right now, my resurrection life is something that is available to you now. What is the stream of doubt associated with this right now deep kind of life? I would say it's existential angst, which we see in our culture all over the place. And we experience ourselves. Why am I here? Why am I here? What is, what is the point of all of this? Why am I alive? What is the meaning of life? Those are really good questions. And if you take a shallow approach to getting some answers to those questions, you're going to go off and you may never come back, honestly. But Jesus is saying, that's me, that's me. That, that thing that you're longing for, that purpose in life that you're longing for, I don't just know how to answer the question. I am the answer to the question. Know me, Thomas, know me, and you'll know life. And you'll have it. You'll have it. People try so hard. They're so uncomfortable with this. I think Jeff said it this morning when we were having our pre-service meeting. People are so uncomfortable with this exclusive claim that Jesus is making. And they want so badly to be able to explain it away. Uh, I read this one statement, and I just am going to read it to you. As I was preparing for this sermon, I came across an author who was a former pastor and now is a spiritual advisor. And he said this, he's talking about this text. He says, today I realize that what Jesus was really saying is this. I am the way, as in I know the way. I've discovered it, which by implication means you can too. In other words, it's as if Jesus was saying, if you believe anything, believe not words, but the way to life itself. My way, like many other ways, will guide you into the eternal. I don't know how he did that. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's three key words is how he did that. In other words. Yes, those are other words than what Jesus said. But this is what he says. <laughs> In other words, my way, like many other ways, will guide you into the eternal. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying I've discovered the way or I know the way. That's not what he's saying. He is putting himself outside of our reality. If that's all he knew was the way to life and happiness here, then he'd be like any other teacher or leader. And that is not, many have said that. Many have said that. Many have said, I know the way to happiness. I know the way to a fulfilling life right now. Many have made that claim. And that's not the claim that Jesus is making. He's saying, I am life itself. I am. If you will know me, you will know life itself. Verse 19 of this chapter, he says, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Nobody talks like that. Nobody talks like that. When was the last time you heard somebody say, In a little bit, I'm going to disappear. Nobody's going to see me. You'll still see me. And because I'm alive, you're going to be alive. 
this is like nothing we've ever heard before or know, right? He is talking about something that's bigger than our reality. So go explore your existential angst. Find some answers. Get it? There are really good answers to the meaning of your life, not just life in general, to your life. And you know what? If you have that angst in your heart, it could be that Jesus himself put it there so that you would know him and you would invite him on this journey. This could be the central journey of your life. If you come out on the other side of that with really solid, deep answers to the purpose of your life, you'll be thrilled that you went on that journey. And we will, as your pastors and your church, will be thrilled. So these are our doubts. These are some of our doubts and some of our questions. And there's room for them. And Jesus isn't afraid. That's the tree you will find if you look for answers here. You will find again and again that Jesus doesn't just know the answers. He is the answer to what you're looking for. He either is or he isn't. He said that he is. He said that he is. So either he's telling the truth about being everything that humanity has ever desired, or he's lying. And there are centuries of Christians who have come to find that he is telling the absolute truth. If you want to deconstruct, let's deconstruct a math equation. I had to Google famous math equations because I don't know any. <laughs> Pythagoras theorem. Anybody know that one still? Juan probably does. You do. Absolutely you do. Holy cow. Okay. Say that again. Oh, God. Oh, I put her on the spot. It's something like B squared. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, you know it. You know it. What did you say? A squared plus B squared equals C squared. And, <laughs> and with that, you can discover, you can discover the area of a triangle. You can discover the area of a triangle with just that simple equation, can't you? You can discover the hypotenuse of a triangle with that simple equation. Now, what if you wanted to... What if you wanted to deconstruct Pythagoras' theorem? Oh, I just kind of showed you how. Just don't know it in the first place. That's how you deconstruct it. And that, honestly, that's how a lot of people deconstruct faith. They just don't know it to begin with. They just know they don't like it. And I don't like Pythagoras' theorem, so how can I deconstruct it? I actually started just on a whim last night, reading about this and found all kinds of ideas about deconstructing Pythagoras' theorem. And here's a couple answers. I loved this one the most. Uh, let's see here. There is one that says, a lot of people believe it. It's been proven right, and so you should just believe it. <laughs> For me, that was enough, honestly, because I'm not going to commit to the discipline that it would take to deconstruct Pythagoras, what disciplines would I have to study if I was going to try to deconstruct Pythagoras' theorem? I'm sorry, just say it loud. Real analysis, geometry for sure. One thing I learned about Pythagoras is he wasn't even a mathematician, he was a philosopher. So take that, Grant. 
<laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, he was a philosopher, so I would have to give myself to some philosophy reading, right? You want to know what else? There have been lots, I found this out, lots and lots of books written on Pythagora, the man, and his philosophies. I should probably read some of those if I want to go about deconstructing his life's work. It was also not his idea. It existed a thousand years before him. So it wasn't his idea. He just culturally appropriated it. <laughs> and for all of time since, we know it is his. He just claimed it. I came up with that. I've done that with my kids. Like, they think that a lot of things that they know are my idea, but... You could try, but if you were to try to do it, you would have to do, you'd have to really commit to it, right? You'd have to commit to it. Or you could do what I did and just say, I'm just not going to believe it anymore and not believe it. You could do that, but you're not really deconstructing anything, right? There were some who had deconstructed it and said, well, that's true if you're in a particular kind of plane, it only works. The Pythagorean theorem only works in a particular reality. What is that? Anybody know? Euclidean. Yes, Grant. You're restored. <laughs> it works in the Euclidean plane. But if you step outside of that, this guy would argue, it doesn't work. So he dismissed the broader, I think he was uh, talking in the realm of physics, as I recall, you got to get beyond it. you got to move beyond it. So you can do it, but you got to really, really commit to doing it. Okay? So if you've got your doubts, if you've got your doubts this morning, Jesus welcomes them. He basically says, in this garden around this tree, this garden around this tree is relationship with Jesus. In fact, he talks a lot more about that than he does Thomas's doubts or the doubts that Philip raises in just a minute. He talks a lot more about this relationship. So here's what I would propose to you, and I'm over time. Here's what I would propose to you. No matter where you're at, I want to just read this uh, last, just important text here. I will ask, verse 15, if you love me, he says this kind of stuff all throughout this chapter. So take some time and meditate on this chapter Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Whoever has my commandments, verse 21, and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus is saying, I am all of these things. I am the way to a very compelling destiny. I am the authoritative answer. I am truth itself. I'm not just honest. I am truth itself. And I am life. If you will know me, you'll know life. But around that, he says, listen, before we go here, know me, Thomas. You've known me. Know me, Philip and James and John. Know me. Hannah said last week that Jesus doesn't come to us with a systematic theology. Though systematic theology is helpful and good, he doesn't come to us with that. 
He comes to us with his presence. And we move from there into an exploration of systematic theology. So if you've been pondering this morning these various areas of destiny, your destiny and truth itself and the meaning of your life, I would say just push pause on some of those questions. Write them down so that they stay there and you can come back to them and answer them. But just take this next year or two years and know Jesus. That's actually the bigger promise that he's making in this chapter. The answer to not being afraid is to know Jesus. And as you pursue him and know him, you're going to have doubts just like his followers did who saw him in the flesh. You're going to have doubts. Thomas, at the end of Jesus' life, finally believes because he says, if I can put my hand on his scars, I'll believe him. And Jesus says, okay, Thomas, here. And Thomas does it. And then Jesus says, so now, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Finally, he settles it. And Jesus says, now you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are they who will not see me and yet still believe. It's talking about us here. The answer to how do we not be afraid is not necessarily get all of your questions answered. The answer to how we obey his commandment to let not our hearts be troubled is to respond to his invitation to know him. So my invitation to you, no matter where you're at on that spectrum, and even if you're settled and content and happy in your vibrant walk with Jesus, even if you're there, take this next year and just read slowly in some community the book of John. Just park there. Just park there. Read John's treatise, his explanation of reality, and ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. Because he's promised to do it. He has said, I will leave my spirit and you will know him and you will know me and I will manifest myself to you. Before you go on your journey of deconstruction, know Jesus because then you can take him with you. This next year, know him. Know him. Read his word. Spend time talking with him in prayer. Spend time resting in him on a regular Sabbath. We've talked about some of these practices. Spend time alone with him in silence and solitude, and he will be known by you. That's why he came. He didn't just come to be truth. He already was that. He came to be God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with you. Know him and let not your hearts be troubled. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your tremendous grace and patience with us, with all of our doubts. It, is, it was an audacious claim for Jesus to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But it is also audacious for us to doubt it. And you have patience with us in that space. You invite us to wrestle and think and use our minds in the reason that you gave us. And you invite us in all of that to know you through the knowledge of your son. So I pray, Father, I pray for a renewed desire to know the risen Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.